This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, June the 8th, the Empathy Redux Edition. I'm Gabriel Roth, an editor at Slate Magazine and the father of Eliza, age six, and Leo, who is almost three. I'm Rebecca Lavoie in New Hampshire. I'm a journalist and podcaster, and I am the mother of Henry, who is 15 and a half, Teddy, who is 14, and I have a beautiful stepdaughter, Lily, who turned 17 in a couple of days. And my name is Carvel Wallace. I'm a freelance writer based out in Oakland, California, and I have two kids, Georgia, who is 11, and Ezra, who is 14. A couple weeks ago, we took a question from a listener, and we answered it unanimously with great and, frankly, unjustified confidence. This week, we will be revisiting that question with some help from somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. Then we will take another listener question about a nine-year-old who is losing her beloved uncle in a divorce. Maybe we will have learned some humility in time for that one. Uh, and of course, we will also have recommendations. And then on Slate Plus, Slate writer Isaac Butler uh, will share how a poorly timed metaphor screwed up his family's entire morning. But first, triumphs and fails. Rebecca, you're up. Well, I have a triumph this week, and I have to say every time Carvel talks about the relationship that he is maintaining with the mother of his children and his ex, um, I feel like you, Carvel, may have been raised on a different planet from the rest of us who've ever uh, been divorced <laughs> and gone through it because it, it should be noted that it is typically not as thoughtful and zen and uh, peaceful as the one that you describe on this podcast, the relationship between you and your ex in those co-parenting roles. However, um, it has been, let's see, I got divorced in 2008. My, my, my husband got divorced in 2009. It has been approximately a decade or so um, since we both were divorced and got together. And I have reached a point with my husband's ex-wife where we are now collaborating on things without him. And it is amazing. And it has taken a very long time. Um, but we actually this week, this past week, bought my stepdaughter a car. 
And it really involved a tremendous amount of communication and coordination between uh, Lily's mom, Patty, and me over, you know, how to gift her the car. It was a surprise. She had no idea it was coming. So, you know, it really had to be one of those things that was special and that we were all on board with because part of the the surprise of it was that we all wanted to be there. We wanted all three of us there so that she knew it was coming from all of us. And it just went so well. It, it went so well, in fact, that Kevin, my husband, uh, jumped in the car with Lily, you know, after we gave it to her and was showing her all the features. And Patty and I were standing outside the car together commiserating over what a dad he was being like you know he she should just let him like he should just let her drive down the street like stop showing her all the buttons and, and features in the car just let her take it for a ride already and we were laughing and joking about it and i just kept thinking like i never thought this day would come it's wonderful it's like a co-parenting triumph of epic proportions and um it just feels really really good to be in that place where we can do something for her as co-parents and not have that post-divorce angst still hanging over us anymore Bravo. I have a follow-up to last week's fail. Uh, I have a minor recuperative triumph. You remember last week, if you were listening, uh, you remember my reading a comic book to Eliza and uh, turning the page to come across a sequence of um, violence against a sex worker. Um, and. <laughs> Having to, uh, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not laughing at I violence was, against the a whole sex time. No. Yeah. <laughs> the whole time, as you were ramping up that sentence, I was like, don't laugh. Yeah, don't I, laugh when I, he says it. I, I know you I'm guys sorry, remember. It's always me. I know you guys remember last week's fail. You're reading to a child. I, I, I know you guys remember it. Maybe some people at home had forgotten, so I, I had to refresh no, their back. memory. In, in any case, um, what I managed to do successfully over the week, um, I not all at once, but very sort of uh, incrementally, but still quickly, I found all of the editions of Runaways, which is the comic book in question that were lying around. She There's like six of them that she'd been looking at, all these paperbacks. Um, and one at a time, I kind of stealthily hid them in a bag up on a high shelf where she will never look. And then I ordered a copy of something that was recommended by a listener on our Facebook page. Someone suggested that a more age-appropriate choice would be the Amulet series by Kazu Kibuishi. Um, volume one is called The Stonekeeper. I ordered that from Amazon and it, uh, it, it arrived. And I hid the Runaways ones and I didn't say, hey, guess what? I took away these comic books you like, but I got you another comic book. Instead, I just said, oh, no, I don't know where those are. No, I haven't seen them. And I left this other one on my dresser where she's going to look and she's going to think it's another one of dad's things that she might be sort of interested in. And the other day I saw her just kind of reading it and she had removed it and it was on uh, the living room table instead of on my dresser. So I feel like I've done a pretty good substitution of age appropriate material for frankly obscene and violent material that I had previously chosen to share with her. Small triumph. Well done. Thank you. Well done. Carvel, well, your very turn. Very well done. It's got subterfuge and well. What you don't want to do is you don't you don't want to say like, "Hey, you can't have that, but you can have this," because then it devalues (laughs) the things that you can have. Absolutely, Um, Carvel, your turn. Triumph or fail? Yeah. So I I have a failure, which is something that it took me a few days to realize was a failure, and I actually haven't even apologized or made amends to my daughter for this, and I I will have to tonight. But a couple of days ago, she had a meltdown in the morning. she was going to school, but she was going to hang out with her friends afterwards. But she realized sometime after we left the house that she didn't have her money. And so she wanted, I didn't have any cash on me, like physical cash to give her for this hangout. And so she wanted her mother to leave work and deliver it to her school in the middle of the day. 
<clears throat> she called up her mother kind of she wanted us to turn back the car first and i was like we're not going to turn back it's way too late if you want we can stop by the bank and i'll get you some money and she was like no then i'll be late to first period and i was like well it's got to be one or the other either either we're going to stop at a bank or you're not going to have money but what isn't going to happen is that you're not going to cry and scream t- at your mother until she basically gets wrestled into leaving work just to come bring you you know ten dollars so you can hang out with these kids so um she then just fell apart. She was really worried, really upset that her friends would be, would be mad at her because she wouldn't have any money, but she was afraid her teacher was going to be mad at her. And she did call her mother and then started like crying and her mother agreed to give her the money. But then as soon as she got off the phone, her mother texted me, can you just give Georgia the money? And I was like, I, that's what we've been trying, but she won't take that. And in that process, I, we were in the car. It was in traffic. We're running late. She's screaming and crying. Her brother is trying to like explain like, to her, like, you're not making any sense. Just take the money from dad. And at some point I said to her, like, you're being terrible right now. Um, this is unacceptable. I kind of like lost my temper with her. Like I yelled at her and we eventually, we got it resolved. Her brother basically loaned her $10 from his personal stash. We got to that school. It was fine. She got out of the car, but she didn't even say goodbye to me when she got out of the car. She was just really mad. And so then her mother texted and was like, look, I, I know you're upset with her, but you got to give her a little more patience. She gets really panicked about upsetting other people. And she, her mother was like, I recognize what that's like. She's a people pleaser. She was afraid her friends are going to be mad. And I was like, well, she's got to learn that like, this behavior is not acceptable, et cetera. And then her mother said, you know, I spend a lot of time in my life with grown women whose dads were loving, but way too critical of them. And it it's damaging. And you have to be careful of that. And at the time I was like, well, harumph, you know, like I just didn't, but I've been thinking about it ever since she texted me that, which was last week. And I feel like I need to actually go back. And since then it's been fine. You know, we haven't, Georgia and I have like, everything's been fine. Stories, hangout, talk, but I never actually addressed, look, I'm sorry that I lost my temper with you on that day. That's not the way I want to treat you. That's not the way I want to like talk to you. And uh, I feel like I need to do that. So I've just been sitting with that uh, as a parent these days. Well, can I just say one thing? Yeah. Is it wrong that part of me is like a little bit relieved to hear that Carvel lost his temper at some point and like yelled at his kid? <laughs> and, and <laughs> because honestly, you are so thoughtful and zen. And I know that you're going to make this right. And I'm sure your daughter already has like a wonderful influence in her life. And you've already modeled exactly how, you know, uh, men should treat women and men should treat their daughters and men should treat each other. Um but it's okay to once in a while have to backtrack with your kids because yeah, you also no, had kind of had it. It's totally okay. And I'm a little bit relieved yeah. to hear that uh, you're actually human, Carvel. Congratulations on that. Oh, wait till we bring my kids on. See, that's why I want to do that because they, they'll, <laughs> they'll tell you, this guy, Zen, get the fuck out of here. So um, <laughs> my kids, you know, I, I definitely like patience is one of my issues and like I, I conceptually understand it and I, I, whatever, but in, in the moment when my kid is really pushing my buttons, I can go either way, you know? And like, that's something that I'm always working on because I'm trying to keep that big picture in mind that like, I, the job isn't to control their behavior. The job is to build honesty, connection, loving relationships with them. And sometimes when I'm not getting what I want, I throw a little bit of a tantrum and then I have to clean that up, you know? Hmm. Okay, we will uh, be revisiting our collective fail on a listener question in just a minute, but first a couple of announcements. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you should join Slate Plus to get more out of this podcast, to get more Slate, and to support this show. Your first year is just $35. Sign up at slate.com slash mom and dad plus. 
And secondly, let us know what you think of the show. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. So a couple weeks ago on this podcast, we took a question from a mother who was trying to cultivate empathy in her two-year-old. Hi, my name is Sentley, and I'm calling for Mom and Dad Are Fighting. I am trying to raise my two-year-old to be very empathetic. Sometimes I'll tell my two-year-old, because he's two, hey, do you see that? That made so-and-so sad when you did this. Oh, when you hurt them, that made them feel like you didn't like them or that was bad. I thought I was doing the right thing, but now I'm thinking I may be creating a codependent adult in the future who feels like their responsibility is to make everyone feel good. And if someone's having a crappy time, it's because of them. I just was wondering if there's any advice, if there's any experts out there that can help teach me how to teach my child to be empathetic and considerate, but also not stress the point that his job is to make everyone feel good. So Rebecca and I and uh, our guest host that week, Steve Lichtai, all agreed that trying to cultivate empathy in a two-year-old is a fool's errand and there's no point. It takes time for uh, babies, basically, to understand that the people around them are also whole people with their own minds and their own lives and have a whole story. Now, there's a lot of research that shows that this is tied to language development and so forth. I wouldn't worry so much about a two-year-old who doesn't seem to understand that the things he's doing uh, might be hurting someone else's feelings in terms of him not having empathy, because I do think that that comes later. Yeah, I totally agree. A two-year-old cannot do empathy. Like, I think that's just um, physiological, like whatever it takes to, to have a concept of someone else as a, uh, having interiority and feelings and consciousness, like a two-year-old is not going to do that. I go away for one week and that's what you guys do. We heard from idiots. a number of <laughs> listeners. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, here we are. Uh, we heard from a number of listeners about that, uh, including Nicole McDonald, a postdoctoral researcher at UCLA who has written about the development of empathy. And uh, according to her, we didn't get it exactly right. Uh, <laughs> she is joining us today. Nicole, thank you for being with us on the program. Um, first of all, let me ask you to correct us. Uh, when do children first develop empathy? Well, it's a gradual process. So from the first days of life, Newborn babies, there have been some studies that have shown that newborn babies respond to other infants' cries in particular. So it's not necessarily just the sound is annoying them, but there seems to be from really early in life a sensitivity that most people have to other people's distress. So that's kind of where it starts. But it's a long kind of road to where we hopefully are as adults. Um, we start to think of something approximating empathy sometime between one and two years old, where kids start to um, respond to other people who are in distress and seem to show some level of concern when um, someone around them might get hurt. So they might look at the person early on, you start to see they just kind of show some interest in those types of situations. Then you might start to see some signs that their face looks sort of sad in response. Um, and then you might also start to see things like, you know, kind of patting someone or showing some level of comfort, trying to give them a toy or distract them, 
showing signs that they're trying to help the person feel better. So we start to see that normally sometime between one and two years of age. So by two, you do see some behaviors that show that at least on the emotional side, that children um, are often noticing when someone else is hurt or upset um, and that they even have some capacity to respond and do something to try to help. So what would you say to a parent wh- whose toddler is is hitting other people in an mm-hmm. ordinary toddler way? Sh- should yep. that parent be appealing to the kid's empathy? I think it's a good part of a response. Um, I think in the long run, something that we do know that helps kids over time learn to kind of understand other people's perspectives, which is an important part of empathy, which isn't there so much early on. They need to learn the words to kind of describe what's going on. So this mom talked about, oh, that person's sad. Oh, that person is hurt. Um, things like that. So you're kind of helping your child to kind of understand someone else's internal experience. Um, So I would agree that that is a good strategy to use as part of your kind of overall parenting repertoire. I think a couple of things that are important with that, I would want to do that across a variety of situations. So something that's hard for, I think, everyone, um, but particularly young kids who can't regulate their emotions as well. They um, are quite sensitive to when they're the ones doing the hurting. Um, So I would want to, um, and that's a little more into the guilt realm, which is related to empathy, but it's a little bit different. So when they're the ones who actually did the harm. So I think pointing out people's emotions in a variety of situations. Um, So for example, I have a almost two-year-old son and a lot of times in his classroom, kids are upset. And um, I do notice that he seems to pay attention to that. So I'll kind of say, oh, your friend Claire is is crying. She seems sad right now. And so just giving words to those experiences when he's having them and when other people are having them. So um, that will help them learn to be able to describe it for themselves and others. Um, another part of um, that I would say, so um, I think it is, some, I would recommend you know, when someone's hurt in really simple language. So you kind of know your kid best, you know, sort of matching it to where they're at Um, saying, oh, you know, no hitting, hitting hurts. Look, she's sad. Keeping it simple, not sort of piling it on, I think is is a great kind of part of your parenting. Now, I wouldn't expect that to immediately have an effect. Um, It's more that over time, I think what we're trying to teach kids is that, you know, kind of reasons for doing the right thing, even when an adult isn't there to tell them what the right thing is. Now, that being said, I think there are other strategies that I would use along with that, um, that I think you guys had alluded to so that kids know there are clear rules. Um, You know, kind of hitting is not something we do, we keep our hands to ourselves, things like that, so that they know what the expectations are for them. Um, as well as, you know, sometimes consequences are appropriate. And then I think another important thing is giving them other strategies to use instead of hitting. Um, In my son's classroom, they teach them mine or space, things like that. So words that they can use or actions they can use so that they don't um, resort to hitting as often. And knowing that kids are just going to hit sometimes is also important. What about this concern that uh, Mm -hmm. a kind of, codependence can be 
sort of developed at this age if there's too much emphasis placed on the causing of other people's feelings? Yeah, the sort of responsibility that the, the responsibility parent had resorted it, yeah. to. Yeah, I think it's not something I kind of think of straight away with what she was describing. Um, I think one of the ways to sort of counteract that is just generally talking about emotions. And it sounds like she does this, honestly, this mom, but just talking about emotions generally. So not just in situations where the child actually caused the harm um, and not like piling it on like, okay, we all make mistakes. You know, that was sad. How can you repair it? Try to teach them to repair it Um, and keeping it to situations where there actually is some level of responsibility on the child's part. Um, I think of, I'm not an expert in codependence, but I think of codependence as, it sounded like she was referring to something where you sort of feel a guilt and responsibility for things that really aren't under your control. Um, So I think, you know, part of it is, you know, kind of just doing it in those situations where maybe it is actually under the child's control. Um, And I think the other thing that's important with empathy is that there can be too much of it. And I wonder if that might be part of what the mom is referring to. So if you feel just overly distressed at every emotion around you, we have to learn how to regulate that. So um, making sure that kids sort of learn strategies for dealing with the emotion, like true empathy is kind of is more focused on another person. So you might have that sensation, but it's not overwhelming. Um, So teaching children skills, which they will just learn a lot of this, they just learn naturally. Um, So teaching children skills for them to be able to kind of not get overly distressed, where you can show caring to another person, but not necessarily feel like that's always um, your responsibility. It's more just like it's a it's the right thing to do. It's a nice thing to do. I know uh, you mentioned that you have a son who's almost two years old. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you've learned in your research that surprised you and that that informed the way you are with him? I definitely think because of the research I do, I have more of I pay more attention to it than than others might. Um, so when you guys are talking about or Gabe, when you were kind of saying two year olds don't do this, probably your children did do some of these things and you maybe didn't think of it in the same way as I do since I study it. Um, so I think that's just something as I noticed, I, I remember with my son when he was 11 months there, it was a very proud parenting moment where this, one of his classmates was crying and he went down and like hugged him and it was very sweet. And I think to me was very significant and just shows how much they're capable of, but it might not seem like a big deal if you're not thinking about that. Um, I would say I make an effort to label emotions for him and teach him those words and talk about emotions. I'm a psychologist, so the poor kid's just going to have to deal with that. Um, (laughs) So I think that's um, one of the things I've taken into account. And then the other thing that we we know kind of helps us kind of just develop socially and learn to empathize is having a warm, responsive relationship. So I guess I think about that, but I also think it's important to just kind of be natural with your kid and be in the moment. And I think that's the easiest way to be responsive. So I do my best to try to kind of not actually have some of the knowledge too much at the forefront um, because I don't want to be like a robot doing these things. And I more just want to follow my, I think, some of the things that most of us just have there automatically. Um, Yeah. So I would say, and I think something that I've learned and I, I'm a psychologist, so I do clinical work as well that I've 
learned from my experience with my son is it's really hard to be consistent. Um, and I always talk with parents about recommending they be consistent. But, you know, when he cries, it really bothers me. So on the parent empathy side and just thinking about how it's really hard to kind of stick to those limits and those no's. Um, so I think I've just gained some empathy for parents that that I work with and that I study. Nicole, I'm wondering on the other side of this, is yeah. there a point at which parents an age or, you know, at which they really should be worried if they're not seeing some of these empathetic traits in their kids? You know, if their kid is, you know, hitting yeah. other kids and, and just doesn't seem to care and, and none of this stuff is working, like, is there an age where they should really seek out some help? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, some of my work is also focused on um, toddlers who are at risk for um, developing autism. So something that we do know is that for these kids, and they have an older sibling with autism, so they have a higher level of risk than the normal population. We do know that um, you can look at it a couple different ways. So kids who are not responding empathically um, between one and uh, around one to three years of age um, are more likely to have you know, higher levels of autism symptoms later on. Now, these are kids who already have some level of risk. Um, so I wouldn't say that that necessarily expands to everyone, but I think that's helpful. I think it's more, it's a good sign to see these behaviors. So if your child is showing these kind of response, these kind of concern for others, um, that's a great sign. Um, if they're not there consistently, it's hard to say a particular age. I would probably anchor it a little bit more in, like you were saying, this aggressive behaviors and thinking about if the aggressive behaviors start to be at a level where now when they're two, it's it's a little bit tricky. Is it causing problems? Are they really harming kids? Is it happening every day? If there is harm that's happening and you're really concerned as a parent, I would search for some help with that. Now that's going to take some putting it into perspective if it's a short phase, um, if it just happens every once in a while, I wouldn't get too concerned. But if the child's three, four, five, and it's it's really causing problems, um, and yes, if you're you know kind of not seeing that child show concern for others um, in any capacity, that might be a good time, even during early childhood, to at least just see someone. I'm generally encouraging of you know kind of seeking out help and seeing whether it's necessary, and having a professional be able to say you know what, I think we have some things that can help this child. Um, or, you know what, this seems pretty normative to me. So I would check back in a year or something like that. Yeah. I have one more question. Um, mm -hmm. Listening back to our first crack at this, I'm struck by how firmly all three of us agreed on a, a, a belief that, um, to put it politely, is not entirely accurate. Um, is this idea that, um, you know, little kids, a, a two-year-old can't have empathy and shouldn't be expected to have empathy and that it's flatly impossible. Is that something that you run into? And is that like a common misperception among people who don't know the research? I think it's a problem of definition. Um, so if you're thinking of empathy as something that there, there are different stages. So it's true that a two-year-old doesn't have a full capacity. Like if I ask them about other people's feelings and what that person's going through, they're not going to be able to tell me that. Um, and it does continue to develop. We don't really have a good understanding of other people's minds until three to four years of age. So if you're thinking of it more in that way, it is true that two-year-olds don't have a great capacity to kind of like really imagine what's going on in other people's minds. Um, 
it is true that language is very important for that process, among other things. Um, so I would say, depending on how you think about empathy, it is a common, I don't know if it's misperception, but misunderstanding. Um, I think researchers could probably do a better job about just kind of communicating about how we think about that and communicating our findings with the public. Um, I think that could help. Um, so I would say it definitely comes up, but empathy has a lot of different definitions and a lot of different components. So. It may also be that I'm thinking about it as an empathy researcher in early childhood in a different way that you guys were thinking about it. So I don't know if it's always a lack of knowledge. I notice in a lot of your answers, you use words like eventually and at a certain point and sort of down the line. And I'm wondering if that's in response to a feeling that I have a lot of times about parenting, which is that one of the mistakes that we tend to make as parents is the expectation that to address a behavior means for it to change instantly in the child, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that we have this two-year-old and we say, don't hit. Hitting is bad. It hurts other people. And we go, well, that's handled. And then the next day our kid hits. And then we're like, well, obviously that didn't work. <laughs> now we've got to do something else. Our kid has a problem. Time to call the, time to call the doctor, you know. And I, I just wonder if that's something that you observe as you work with parents and, and study these cases. Yeah, definitely. I think patience is really important. Um, one, because kids go through phases. My son has gone through a couple of biting phases and I have my emotional reaction as a parent. And then we do a couple of things. And for one, some behaviors just pass. So you don't want to make too big of a deal of them. Um, on the other end, yes, it, parenting is like an investment over time. So if we, you're just, there are very few interventions that you're going to do um, that you're going to see an immediate impact for. And I think a lot of times, you know, I might recommend timeout or something. If you just do timeout once or twice, it's not going to work. Now there's some debate whether it works long-term or not, but uh, many interventions have that as a part of it. You need to try it out for some time um, to, to see if it's going to have an effect. And a lot of the things that we do, we're not going to see the outcomes of for, you know, maybe years. Um, but it's true that we're there. It's very rare that you're going to see something that's going to work right away. And I think especially in the case of trying to like build something like empathy, which is such a big thing. Um, I doubt that, you know, this parent or parents who use this approach um, are going to see, um, you know, kind of short term effects. Great. All right. Nicole McDonald, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, we've got a listener question from Erica. Hi, my name is Erica. My sister's husband recently told her he wants a divorce, and while we're obviously sad for her, we're not upset especially to lose him. Our nine-year-old daughter feels differently, though. Her uncle's always been great with her, and he's been in her life since she was about five or six. We live across the country and only see them a few times a year, but it's for extended visits, and she and her uncle have always had a lovely relationship, and we've certainly never shared our complaints about him with her. She's not taking the news of the divorce too hard, but she has expressed confusion and sadness that he won't be in her life and won't be her uncle anymore, which I understand. My sister has offered that if it would help my daughter to write him a letter, she wouldn't mind at all. What do you think? There's no scenario in which my daughter has an ongoing relationship with him, and she isn't in true distress over this, but she has returned to it a few times, and it's clearly on her mind. Do you think writing and maybe receiving a letter in return could provide some good closure, or would it just create additional messiness for her? Thank you for your thoughts. As always with these questions, it's a matter of what's left out that seems to be really important. I don't know why exactly how bad this guy is, right? So like 
So sentences like, we won't miss him at all, suggest that there are some legitimate issues with his behavior and what have you. I don't know what they are. Um, and yet, the fact that this person is asking, is it okay if my daughter maintains at least probably a short-lived uh, writing relationship with this individual suggests that she thinks that that might be possibly okay. In other words, if he was like a dangerous character, I don't think she'd be like, he's dangerous, but should my daughter write to this guy? Like, I don't. So I'm assuming that the only question is about will writing letters make the transition easier or more difficult? And assuming that that's the question, I believe that writing a letter exchange can make the transition cleaner. I think that transitions are really hard for kids and closure is really hard for kids. And I think that if they have a way to participate in the closure so that it doesn't feel like it's happening to them from the universe, that the adults have just decided this person is no longer existing in your life. I think if the kid can participate in that, that's fine. My, the other thing to keep in mind is that my experience with kids, myself and other kid, other, other kids and myself when I was a kid is that kids don't have a l great appetite for letter writing. So this probably won't turn into, you know, an entire epistolary that goes on for decades. Probably if she writes a little letter, maybe he'll write back, maybe he won't. And that will probably help her move to a point where she remembers this as a guy that was once around and isn't anymore and life goes on. So I would say that. I think the letters have a good opportunity to help with the closure. I agree. I think like writing a letter in that situation is a thing that you might do even as an adult, right? If there's somebody who like you've been friends with or you've been close to and they're about to be out of your life because of the end of their relationship with somebody else, writing them a letter to say, hey, you meant a lot to me and I care about you and I'm sorry that we have to say goodbye and goodbye. Like I could see feeling good about doing that in that situation. And I think the same thing probably applies to a nine-year-old. Like rather than just have this be this person has disappeared off the face of the earth and you never get to have any communication communication with them again. Saying goodbye, it's meaningful. Let her do it. Rebecca, what do you think? I agree. I mean, this is a grieving situation, right? She's losing a relative and the relative's mm. not going to come back. This guy probably isn't going to remarry her aunt at some point in the future. And, you know, I, as an adult, my older sister, when I was in my 20s, divorced her husband and I loved my brother-in-law. I knew that they weren't happy together, but I adored him and he had been in my life since I was a kid. And it was really, really hard for me for a long time. Now, fast forward a couple decades and he and I are friends on Facebook and it's all cool. And she's friends with him on Facebook, too. So it's all fine. But that idea of being able to have that communication and that closure communication, it really is, I think, a natural step that would help anybody with their process of grief. Now, uh, this woman's daughter is nine. She probably hasn't had a ton of exposure to divorce yet. When she reaches, you know, middle school age and high school, she's going to be uh, dealing with a lot of friends whose parents are divorcing. I'm saying this from experience. I've seen it over and over and over again. My kids were among the first in their school to have divorced parents, and now they are, you know, among many. And I do think it's a good opportunity too to talk about that, to talk about adult relationships. If it's if it's appropriate that you know um, you may love your uncle, but sometimes couples aren't happy together, and just have a little bit of a dialogue if she asks for it, obviously. But yeah. I say let her send a letter if he writes back. That's great. Um, I don't think adults have much of an appetite for letter writing either, especially to kids. So I agree with Carvel that it's very likely to be a short-lived correspondence if he writes back at all. 
All right. Remember, if you've got a parenting quandary you'd like us to tackle, give us a call at 424-255-7833. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Time now for recommendations. I'm going to recommend a beautiful wordless picture book called Flotsam. It's by David Wiesner. Eliza used to love it when she was about three or four, and I just read it to Leo for the first time. And he, it, you have to show him exactly what's going on in each of the pictures and how the pictures tell the story. And it really, uh, it, it just worked on him for the first time. He's just about big enough for it. Um, and it's beautiful, and you can look at it again and again and again. Um, Flotsam by David Wiesner. Uh, Carvel, do you have a recommendation? Yeah, this is a little weird, but I got this from my daughter. I'm going to recommend Google Slides, believe it or not. They do all these – my kids make slide presentations for class and then they – like there's all this stuff that happens. But my daughter and her friends have just started making slide presentations on their own and they're really into them. So they'll do a slide presentation on different kinds of dogs. So they'll spend all this time on the internet researching dogs and then they'll do like a slide presentation and they'll send us the link. Or they'll make slide presentations to uh, – my daughter made one to advocate why she should be allowed to go to this particular summer camp that she wanted to go to. Um, but I was talking with – with her about it last night and I was kind of asking why do you like it and she was like I don't know it just it just feels like she said it's just a good way to organize all the information that I have and to like put it in something that I can show people and I was asking her if it was easy to use and she was like it's really easy to use and that's what I like about it and we learn how to do it in school but now I just do it sometimes when I'm just bored I'll just make slide presentations um so it sounded like she got a lot out of it so I'm recommending Google Slides in the Bay Area, teenagers make decks for fun. <laughs> well, you have to get you, you got to get seed investment somehow, Gabe, and I'm not sure how you guys do it, but in this economy, ah, great, uh, Rebecca. I'm going old school. I'm going back to when my kids were a little bit younger and a game that I made up when they first started using screens. This was pre-iPod, pre-phone. They had these Nintendo DS little handheld uh, video game. Players, But this would also work with iPhones. It would work with iPad touches. It would work with Polaroid cameras or old digital cameras you have lying around. I used to take my kids to the park and make them do a photo scavenger hunt because their Nintendo DSs could take these like very rudimentary pictures. And I found uh, digging through my stuff an old uh, list of scavenger hunt items that I made up one day out of the blue. Um, here were the items. You went to the park. They had to find and photograph gum stuck under a bench. A baby who hates the swings, a flower growing somewhere it shouldn't, litter, someone who brought better snacks than we did, 
a puppy, the highest view on the playground, and a kid hanging upside down. So I don't remember <laughs> exactly who won that day, but um, I remember it being a fun way to integrate their screen obsession and technology with actually being outside and running around and, you know, doing some healthy, creative activity slash competition. So I call it the photo scavenger hunt. I recommend it highly. All right. That's our show. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Benjamin Frisch. If you have a question you'd like us to tackle, call 424-255-7833 and visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Fighting. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoie, I'm Gabriel Roth. We'll be back next week. Let's wait a while before it's too late. Let's wait a while. That's the jam. I really hope we're taping in Berkeley right now. Before we go too far. We're ready to go now. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the Promise Keeper song. That's the virginity song, man.